we may think about ecosystems as an external appendage for the firm, but we can't really have a two-sided marketplace as our main business model involving thousands of other enterprises unless we change the inside of the firm too. So the external ecosystem revolution begets an internal Cambrian explosion of experimentation with holacracy and uh, micro-business units and market-based dynamics and all sorts of other experiments with how to run a company internally. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello friends, Simone here, the usual host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. Today I am presenting uh, an episode of our podcast that I recorded with my uh, now recurring corporate innovation and transformation expert co-host, management luminaire Bill Fisher. Today we are talking to Marty Reeves, which is the managing director in the San Francisco office of BCG and chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, uh, which is the BCG uh, think tank on business strategy. Martin is also the co-author of uh, the book called Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. In our conversation, we take a deep dive into what it means for a business to become an ecosystemic one and to compete in the 2020s. We also talk about the bankruptcy of the current ways of doing strategy in a world that is in deep and continuous transformation. Martin also speaks widely about the renewed importance of imagination in organizations and about the need to compete on the rate of learning combining human ingenuity with the power of machines and much more. Enjoy this terrifically insightful episode with Martin Reeves and also with my kids doing some serious noise in the background towards the end. Enjoy that. Hello, everyone. So I'm excited today to be with two very important voices in all things related to corporate innovation and transformation, and especially in ecosystems innovation and firm evolution, let's say. Today, I'm lucky to have as a co-host with me, Bill Fisher. Uh, Simone and Martin, I'm looking forward to this. And also, we have Martin Reeves as our special guest. Uh, Martin is chairman of Henderson Institute of BCG, which is a think tank on the future of business strategy. Hello, Martin. Hello. Nice to be here. So we are very excited about this conversation in a first uh, preliminary conversation that we had to frame these uh, podcasting episodes. We spoke with Martin about uh, how, uh, um, you know, I would say how special is the moment we are living now, we're seeing now uh, also in terms of uh, what uh, Martin called a Cambrian explosion of ecosystems and ecosystem strategies. And uh, we were questioning really what is the competitive significance of that and uh, more broadly, we ended up in talking about uh, uh, why this issue is probably attached to a broader transformation shift that we are seeing uh, in, in this moment in terms of how the future of the firm is being uh, restructured, let's say, and uh, what is the future of corporate capitalism more generally. So, Martin, maybe you can help us to frame the conversation quickly in a first, uh, in a first exploration. Yes, happy to do that. So the word ecosystem, I think, has exploded in its usage. It's being used 15 times more now, the word ecosystem, than it was a couple of years ago. And it 
although it, the, the word is used very ambiguously, I've seen it mean to use anything from a um, you know a country to uh, uh, to a culture to a product portfolio. I think it is pointing to something very real. And as evidence of that, I would point to the explosion in the growth of digital platform businesses, uh, which of course are collections of collaborating companies uh, which uh, collaborate to form a coordinated offering. So 10 years ago, none of the world's top 10 companies by market capitalization was an ecosystem. And now seven of the largest 10 companies are actually two-sided digital marketplaces. Um, so that's an incredible change in business. It's a, that's a revolution. The question is, what does it all mean, of course, because this is a new chapter in the strategy textbook and one that you know, hasn't been completely written yet. So I, by an ecosystem, I mean a group of collaborating companies that coordinates uh, nowadays digitally to produce a common offering. So what's going on here? What's going on, I think, is both the possibility and the need for that coordination. Uh, the need comes from the fact that technology has driven the evolution of business models such that uh, we have a very high rate of change, a very uh, high degree of uncertainty in business, which means that we need uh, faster uh, ways of collaborating and, uh, and, and coordinating. So the, the digital ecosystem, if you like, has become the peripheral nervous system of the company. And the possibility also is enhanced by the same technologies that have driven this uh, acceleration of, uh, of business model innovation, namely uh, two-sided marketplaces and artificial intelligence um, give us the possibility of, of faster learning. So fundamentally what's going on, I think, is a shift from static learning uh, or static competition based upon things like scale and efficiency to dynamic competition based upon the rate of learning. In other words, we're now competing not on efficiency doing yesterday's things, but rather our effectiveness in learning faster than our competitors. And that actually triggers many more profound changes. So if we want to keep compete on the rate of learning, then we need new types of organization. A, a large human hierarchy is not a particularly fast means of, of learning about new things. So we need to think about, for instance, hybrid organizations, organizations which combine the ingenuity of human beings with the very rapid correlative learning capabilities of uh, machine learning. We need to think about uh, change management. You know, probably the most important technology of management, which doesn't really work that well, is, is change management. This obviously accelerates the need for change, and 75% of major change efforts fail. So we actually need to bring the data revolution, the analysis revolution to, to change management in order that when we learn and we change, we're changing effectively. It brings into question a lot of very human questions like, well, what do the human beings do then? Um, so machine learning does routine correlative learning. Human beings are uniquely advantaged in doing counterfactual thinking, imagination. So we need somehow to come up with an organizational construct that, that frees up human beings' ability to, to imagine. Uh, diversity becomes more important. We want cognitively diverse enterprises that are able to entertain multiple points of view and multiple ways of reacting to information uh, so that we can learn and uh, adapt more effectively. And then we may think about ecosystems as an external appendage for the firm, 
but we can't really have a two-sided marketplace as our main business model involving thousands of other enterprises unless we change the inside of the firm too. So the external ecosystem revolution begets an internal Cambrian explosion of experimentation with holacracy and uh, micro-business units and market-based dynamics and all sorts of other experiments with how to run a company internally. So that's a, a brief view of, you know, what is this ecosystem thing, what's going on, and what are its broader consequences? Well, I, I love that the point that you raised on the imagination and, and change management, because this reminded me of a couple of conversations that we had on the podcast recently, especially one with, uh, with Andy Johar, where um, Indy basically pushed us to think about uh, the role of reflective spaces in organizations and in institutions. So, so basically a way to counteract, I would say, resist to the frictionlessness of technology and create reflective spaces into organization. And you spoke about uh, imagination. And uh, to some extent, you, you said, you know, we need new organizational constructs for imagination. And on the other hand, uh, another conversation that we had with where Bill was also co-hosting with me, uh, with Alex Osterwalder. No? And uh, with Alex, we, we, we spoke a lot about this uh, point of uh, change management. Uh, and uh, it's really important to understand that, that as the transition to these new models is so staggering, the change management becomes an even more important topic to discuss and even more a topic of uh, discussion for leadership. So any, anything that you want to add, especially on these two points, you know, so imagination and change, what is the role of these two aspects in the corporate organization, in the firm? Right. Well, I think um, this is what I call the uh, mental aspect of strategy, which I've, um, it's not published yet, but I've just completed a book on uh, how we compete mentally as well as physically. So the the learning revolution in business, which is triggered by technology, I think has a number of profound changes that you hinted at. One of them is that, of course, it accelerates the, the importance of information and the processing of information, which potentially overwhelms humans. So this, is, this begs the question of the complementarity between humans and machines. It also highlights counterintuitively slow thinking or reflective thinking, namely, uh, we can't just be processing information. We need to you know, stand back and reflect on its uh, broader implications. We also need to think about the unique advantages of humans with respect to imagination. And probably the word that we'd least associate with large corporations is, uh, is imagination. Most large corporations are essentially optimizing yesterday's business model as opposed to imagining tomorrow's business model. And then in terms of change, well, some of the changes going on is, is too fast for humans. I mean, we have a change at the time scale of milliseconds, algorithmic change. And so we need to manage that indirectly. And so we need new governance models in order to do that. But the slow change is still very important. It's important that we, th we think about the political and the social and the ecological uh, slow change timescales because slow change can be quite profound. It can change the entire fabric of the systems within which companies are embedded. So we need to think about all of that too. So collectively, I call, of that, I call all of that the, uh, the, the, the mental ecosystem change. So we have the external revolution, the technology and digital platform revolution. We have the internal organization revolution relating to that. And then we have the mental revolution that all of that requires. 
which to some people may seem to be a form of stress, you know, yet, yet, a, yet another set of to-dos that we need to think about. But the nature of those changes is actually profoundly liberating uh, in, in, in my mind. We go from the, um, you know, the slavery of routine to the, uh, uh, the liberation of uh, imagination, reflection, and, uh, and creativity. So fundamentally, it's a, it's, it's a good thing. I love that. Uh, Bill, do you want to add some reflections on that? So, Martin, I'd like to ask about the role of strategy in all of this. Strategy as we know it in a traditional, you know, business school, corporate sense. Uh, when you talk about liberation of innovation and you talk about seeding, I guess, a lot of decision making to artificial intelligence, what's the role of strategy in all of this? Is there is there a role for strategy? Well, people, that's a great question. People equate strategy with planning, and um, planning is one form of strategy. Namely, we uh, we look at the data and we analyze the data and we come up with a durable plan and we execute against the plan. And we do that, and then we renew that episodically. We we look at that every every year or every five years. That's one type of strategy. But if we um, if we look more broadly, if we define strategy as any systematic pattern of thought and action. Uh, which creates competitive advantage, then I think there are other species of strategy out there that have traditionally been more neglected by business schools and large corporations. So uh, in addition to classical strategy, planning strategy, we have adaptive strategy. Adaptive strategy is all about learning from changing and uncertain circumstances. And uh, it critically involves um, iterative experimentation. We have what you could call visionary strategy, which is uh, entrepreneurs thinking of ways in which new things could be created in the world, new models. Um, and then we have collaborative or co-evolutionary strategy, which is a strategy of ecosystems where a group of players together co-evolve to, uh, to reshape an industry. And we have renewal strategy. A renewal strategy is rapid pragmatic action to escape from an unfavorable situation. So, you know, I think we always had the possibility of these different species of strategy. But the thing that my last book, uh, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, was about was essentially the art of meta-strategy, which is uh, the art of knowing what sort of strategy you need and choosing the right sort of strategy for the right part of the business at the, uh, at the right time. So let me give you a practical example. You know, if I'm um, mining coal or printing newspapers, um, it may largely be about you know, efficiency and, uh, and classical strategic planning. If I'm adapting to, the, um, to an embryonic, you know, video conferencing uh, business where different competitors and technologies are jostling for advantage every day, then I might need an adaptive strategy. If I'm an entrepreneur creating something new to the world, then I might need a visionary strategy. If I'm running a, a large digital marketplace in an emerging business, I may need a co-evolutionary strategy. And if I'm trying to rescue myself from obsolescence brought about by, say, the COVID crisis, I may need rapid, pragmatic renewal strategy. So coming to the, your question directly, I think this revolution that we're going through is partly, you could say, about the diversification of our, uh, of our approaches to strategy. Now, some people would not recognize the things, many of the things I'm talking about as strategy, but I define strategy very, you know, very pragmatically as whatever gets the job done and the job to be done is to deploy the thought and action patterns which create competitive advantage in the particular circumstance. There's few things that are more pragmatic in an organization than the boundaries around the firm. And yet what you're suggesting suggests that the boundaries around the firm become less and less relevant 
to trying to meet the more complex needs of uh, of the marketplace. Is that true as well? Are we going to really see a, 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 a complete change in the way in which the firm defines itself? Well, here, here is where language, I think, gets treacherous and, and, and very important. So we we have a construct in business of the firm and we have a construct of the uh, of the industry and we have a construct of market share and we have a construct of competition. We mustn't forget that these are not facts. These are mental constructs. These are mental models, if you like. And um, we should always question our mental models and especially now because the idea, let's take the idea of industry, for example. You know, I'm in an industry with uh, a bunch of competitors that are structured like me and make the same end product. Well, this is a very questionable mental construct nowadays. You know, what is the communications industry? The communications industry blends with the, the, with the gaming industry, with the shopping industry, with a bunch of other uh, industries. Platforms, digital platforms can seamlessly cross across industries. So you won't find Alibaba uh, or, or firms like that using the word industry very often. They have horizontal platforms that cut across industries. And similarly, the firm, you know, it may seem like a no-brainer if I say, when I say the word strategy, what is it the strategy of? You may say, of course, it's the strategy of the firm. Well, not necessarily, because if I'm a, uh, the orchestrator of a multi-firm ecosystem, then I need to think about strategy at two levels. I need to think about uh, what's going to make my multi-company ecosystem successful relative to other ecosystems or other governance forms. And then I also need to think about value capture and my own position within that ecosystem. So strategy becomes about changing the unit of analysis from the firm only uh, to the firm and the ecosystem. And then if we, uh, if we zoom out, in fact, we see that there's a shift in the units of analysis uh, more broadly. If classically we might think about the, the units of analysis as the person, the firm, the industry, and the economy, nowadays we need to put more emphasis on the uh, ecosystem, uh, the city. The city has become a very important uh, a unit of wealth generation, and then the globe. Of course, you know the, many of the many of the common problems that humanity faces are now are now don't respect national borders. They're they're, they're global in nature. So, you know, I think Bill, you're you're hinting at um, another revolution which needs to take place, which is the uh, the strategy revolution or the mental model of strategy revolution. What is strategy, and what gets the job done uh, under the particular circumstances that we face? Super, super interesting, really, how you um, are broadening the picture, no? So how do you are, are connecting the firm to uh, most of the holons, let's say, that uh, contain the firm uh, in modern in the modern context. And I love your reference to this idea of uh, small world, so basically where everything is gets connected. And uh, uh, I'm, the question that I have is, uh, more than a question, is a reflection that I want to share with you because you're always... You already made the point in the preparation conversation, for example, that uh, this is going to have a very huge impact on this idea of competition. Because uh, especially if we think about uh, platforms as cross-industry or in general, uh, for example, this pattern that they have, that they tend to be to some extent uh, post-competitive. You know? So once you have a platform, it doesn't want to compete. You know? It tends to become the ecosystem doesn't want to compete. It tends to become an inclusive on one hand and uh, something that uh, stays on top of everything else from another point of view. Uh, and, and then you said, for example, that competition is in the governance form 
uh, when you have ecosystems. You know? so, so I really want, I would love to, for you to explore more what does it mean to embrace an ecosystemic thinking and also to integrate uh, the firm with all the context that uh, the firm is connected with uh, in terms of how these impacts on this idea of competition, which, as you mentioned, is essentially the job to be done for organizations. Well, this particular one, uh, this particular issue is personally very challenging for me because I, I prayed to the gods of sustainable competitive advantage every night before I went to bed. I was brought upon the mantra of sustainable competitive advantage, which is the idea that firms compete within industries and they compete on the basis of uh, uh, advantages which can come from um, from scale or differentiation or <clears throat> uh, other sources. Um, but the ecosystems revolution uh, changes that in a number of ways. So, of course, we still have competition, but it changes the unit of analysis of competition. So we are, w- w- ecosystems are competing with each other. And it changes the, you could say, the diversity of competition because different governance forms are competing with each other. Uh, for example, uh, uh, the famous incident which defied conventional strategy logic um, some years ago when Apple beat Nokia, which was a 60% uh, market share player uh, in the highly regulated, highly scale-sensitive uh, smartphone business. Um, Apple, a, a firm that had never made a, a phone before, beat uh, Nokia to become the, the market leader in uh, a matter of about 18 months. So that doesn't make sense in traditional competitive advantage terms, but it was a competition between governance forms. It was a it was a competition of of a network or an ecosystem on Apple's side, uh, with a monolith on Nokia's side. Um, another way in which the idea of competition gets uh, changed is that competition doesn't cease within ecosystems. There's comp- there's a, sort of a competition of power. Am I the orchestrator? Are the or- are you the uh, you know are you the orchestrator? As a complementer to my ecosystem, what power do you have? What's your uh, how does the power dynamics work? So there is competition within ecosystems, but it's uh, it's indirect competition. It's 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 competition of influence rather than competition of, let's say, companies doing the same thing, producing the same product, um, and it also uh, contains an element of collaboration. So some years ago, there was a, a famous book produced called uh, Competition, which is the idea that in a digital economy, competition blends with collaboration and. That was an interesting, uh, you know, academic point at the time, but it's now the reality of competition within uh, within uh, ecosystems. The other uh, thing is, um, you know, how we compete. Um, so, in in a slowing, somewhat predictable situation, we can compete on, you know, what what traditionally was called strategic analysis. We can analyze the data, and we can generate options, and we can make explicit rational choices, and create plans, and follow those plans. So it was a very deliberate form of competition, a little bit like um, uh, chess, say, very deliberate, very cerebral, very rational. But of course, now we have um, more complexity, we have more dynamism, and we have um, a a greater velocity of change, we have greater uncertainty. Uh, So competition becomes more more artful in the sense that um, sometimes we don't we can't know all of the data, or sometimes we have these systemic effects where everything is connected to everything, and therefore we have uh, emergent properties of business systems um, such that we need a different logic. We need systems thinking in order to influence and shape a system as opposed to definitively control it through uh, through enduring rational plans. And that's a different way of thinking about strategy. So I'm spending more of my time 
nowadays um, in my work as a strategist with thinking about things like emergence and and shaping systems and engineerable spaces and unpredictable spaces and multiple bets and um, uh, and good enough judgments and uh, you know defining what we the boundary of what we know and what we don't know and uh, you know a much more uh, a much broader and actually in some senses more exciting uh, conception of, of strategy. So that's the sort of strategy we should be practicing, I think, in many cases nowadays. The problem is that we, uh, the definitive textbook on that, the definitive business school course as to how to do that sort of strategy doesn't exist. But, you know, that's always been the nature of strategy. Strategy is, um, as a game, the, the thing that makes strategy interesting is that it's an infinite game. You're never done. If I come up with a great idea you know, sooner or later it will be uh, imitated. And therefore, I need to move to second-order strategic innovation, which is I need to think about different ways of thinking about strategy as well as different strategies. So we're now at a time when we need to think about different ways of thinking about strategy. And even though we don't have that, uh, that definitive methodology worked out, nevertheless, providing we're better than our competitors, we can still be advantaged. Martin, to what extent uh, the word strategy is, uh, you know, in the context that you just described, uh, the word strategy is a word that we use just because we don't have any other word that works, you know. So uh, we're used to this idea of strategy and competition and, and so on. And now suddenly we have discovered that everything is connected. You mentioned systems thinking, for example. So I, I'm thinking about the incredible, uh, huge uh, I would say gaps that we need to uh, bridge uh, when it comes to uh, upskilling our management, for example, or uh, or uh, even pushing it farther. I would say it's not even a skill problem; it's almost an epistem epistemological problem. You know, so it's really, uh, you know, I, I remember I was once with Nora Bateson, and she mentioned this episode where uh, she was working with the chief of AI. I think uh, in uh, in uh, uh, Microsoft it was, and uh, um, they, you know they ended up in talking about the philosophy of technology, and uh, so so my question is really about to what extent are we really now aware that we need to build an entirely new. Uh, uh, epistemo epistemology of business, epistemology of organizing. We need to build a new complete skill set. Uh, to deal with what we now really feel it's important to change in business? Well, I think there's a spectrum of uh, awareness across companies. I think the, uh, the current uh, coronavirus um, situation is helpful in a, in a strange respect. Um, so I've always said that, you know, strategy, any, any discipline has its own complexity. So strategy has its own arcane tools and language. But fundamentally, it's a very simple thing. You know, it's, it's about beating your competitors and, and doing anything that, that, that is required to do so. That, that's effectively what strategy is about. You know, in, in an uncertain world, however, there is a second question which, come, which crops up, which is not only how good is my game, but how long will my game last? Namely, the, the question of resilience. And the, the current coronavirus uh, crisis, I, I think, has brought home to everybody uh, the incredible importance of resilience. You know, as we observe our efficient, cost-effective global supply chains uh, being, being devastated by the change around us, uh, we become aware that uh, brittleness and robustness are as important as the, uh, as the efficiency um, of, of the game. So I think there's, um, 
a growing awareness. I think technological disruption is also creating a growing awareness that our traditional toolkit may not be uh, may not be everything that we, uh, uh, we 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 need. Of course, there are many examples of uh, incumbent companies that have been felled, um, you know, very very rapidly in the space of uh, you know months rather than years by digital disruptors. But the the problem is that um, you know knowledge of something or an aspiration to think in a different way, of course, is a long way from uh, behaving in a different way. And, and we have a number of things that get in the way of embracing these new ideas. Um, the first one is, um, uh, is is actually language. Language can be a barrier. If I think I know what strategy means, then you know, I may be less open uh, to uh, flexing that, that word. So I once uh, worked for a, a, a CEO who said, you know, look, don't mention the word strategy around here. We don't, we don't allow people to use that word. And it was actually very helpful. Um, you know, I'm a strategist, so everything I do is, is, is strategy. And so, you know, initially it was a little scary when he said, do not mention the word strategy, but actually it was fundamentally helpful to be forced to say, what is it that we're trying to get done here? And, and how do we propose to get it done? It, because it resulted in the elimination of fuzzy thinking from imported definitions of what we think strategy means. Another um, obstacle is... Um, is the inertia of, of collections of, of, of human beings, collective mental inertia. So, you know, for you to understand what you mean by strategy and to understand that I mean the same thing is an alignment and a mutual knowledge problem. Um, it's what the philosophers call the intersubjectivity problem. You know, I've got a construct in my head or an idea uh, and you think you have the same idea in your head. How do we know that it's the same idea? Because we can't we can't point to it and say, well, it is exactly the same. So we therefore need to use language to describe the idea, and and then that creates a double uh, intersubjectivity problem, which is then we need to know that the terms we use to describe the terms uh, mean mean the same thing. And the problem is, of course, under changing circumstances, uh, they may not. So ultimately, we can only know that we mean the same thing um, if we to undertake collective behavior we do we take actions in the real world and we can observe that they are uh, coherent with each other or have the um, or, or, or have the re or have the desired result um, another one is um, is behavior you know behavioral habits um, so the classical strategic planning process is is a habit you know every year we spend several months creating pieces of paper and exchanging those pieces of paper and sitting through ritualized meetings and those rituals can be useful Historically, they're very useful, or they can be less useful, but the behaviors may continue independently of how useful they are. I see this a lot in what I call Frankenstein strategy assignments, where mentally a lot of progress is made, but the behavior doesn't change. So you find people embracing adaptive strategy mentally, but then somehow trying to force it into the uh, unchanging um, templates of a, of a strategic plan planning process. So I think, you know, one always has to be wary of new jargon because, you know, I can use the word ecosystem in a fairly meaningless way. I can use it in an inconsistent way. I can use it in a ubiquitous way. I could apply the word ecosystem. I could say, uh, Simone, you know, how's your mental ecosystem today? Let me tell you about ecosystems. Let's go, let's go shop in the nearest ecosystem and, and at some level, you know, uh, be passable. But, um, but nevertheless, uh, new words, um, uh, carry a great significance. There's a, there's a very critical moment, which I call when does a thing become a thing, uh, which is the, uh, the moment when we 
understand what something means and we give it a name and then we share that name so it's it's very important in strategy it's it's very important in in, uh, in organizational behavior the point at which we give new things uh, names and in fact great responsibility attaches to that so you, you ask you're asking very profound questions today but that I, hopefully I, I i sort of touched on some of the elements there definitely definitely Pila, do, do you wanted to add something right i do um martin i want to pick up on what you were just talking about I was I was fascinated by the idea of collective behavior, and um, and I was thinking about the assigning of a name ecosystem, and in over the last couple of years in the ecosystems that I've been working with, some of which you're familiar with, the higher ecosystems of food and clothing, Copenhagen's e sports ecosystem, you know I I I don't see them as commonly agreed upon ecosystems. It seems to me that every member of the ecosystem sort of has a design or a belief as to what the ecosystem looks like. And it's often unarticulated. Um, and and But they're in it because they believe there's potential that will come out of this ecosystem. And And I also think that what happens as a result of this is that there's many ecosystems in play at the same time. And and they're visible only to a few of the players who, who, who understand what they're trying to do. Um, but as long as everyone else is benefiting from them, and everybody else would not be the full set of community players, they go along with this. And then, and then the final piece of this, I don't know whether it's a question anymore or a statement, but um, you use the word or- orchestrator. Um, it seems to me that orchestrators are very common, pre- prevalent in value chains, but in ecosystems, you probably want less emphasis on orchestrators so that you can get more spontaneity. And I'm wondering, you know, if this idea of multiple unarticulated, unidentified ecosystems in parallel makes sense to you and the role of the orchestrator, is it a lighter touch than we might have expected otherwise? Um, I think that's a great question, Bill. Um, you know, when we say the word strategy, um, it carries a couple of strong nuances. Uh, one of them is that it's um, uh, deliberate. Um, in other words, a strategy is something that I can tell you what it is, and I mean it to be as it is. Um, it, it carries a nuance of uniqueness, which is the strategy, not a strategy or a number of strategies, you know, a strategy, uh, the strategy, um, uniqueness. Um Thirdly, it carries a a nuance of um, uh, alignment, which is we mean the same thing by strategy. We're in the same company, so there can only be one strategy. And then the fourth nuance is permanence, which is um, if I ask you in five minutes' time what the strategy is, you're not going to say something something different. Now, um, if we relax those assumptions and say, well, is it still strategy? Again, I come back to my pragmatic definition. Whatever gets the job done, if, uh, you know, if I... Um, uh, enrich myself um, because I sell more, I make more money, and I do so over a longer period of time uh, by by uh, by relaxing those assumptions. Then that is that is the right thing to do. Um, uh, so so what becomes required under those circumstances is to figure out what a strategy means, what gets the job done under those circumstances. And I think we are precisely in a situation where those assumptions are getting relaxed. So. Is the strategy unique? Well, not necessarily, because 
um, you know, if you think about an adaptive strategy, um, adaptation um, basically is continuous trial and error. You know, we, we try multiple things and some of them work and some of them don't work. So what is the strategy? Well, the strategy um, is whatever is emerging as the best answer to the question. It's not necessarily the strategy, yes, that is answer. It may be uh, a new strategy. And, or we may not know, know yet. We may have, you know, three experiments or 3,000 experiments on a digital platform in progress uh, from which the strategy will, will emerge. Um, uh, you know, will the strategy remain constant? No, probably it won't remain constant over time. Do we all mean the same thing by strategy? Well, almost by definition, not with an adaptive strategy or an ecosystem strategy, because it is the variance that is the secret source. You know, in a um, one of the most um, interesting words in business, from my perspective, is the word alignment. Are you aligned? It's uh, you know it has very menacing connotations. Uh, you know, if you, if you're not thinking exactly the same thing as me and doing exactly the same things as me, you know, you have a problem. The idea that everything has to be fully aligned in a, in a completely knowable, stable system, maybe that's the best strategy. But if it can't be the case, actually, we learn through variance. We learn from the fact that we're not precisely aligned. So there can be uh, no alignment uh, on strategy. And then in an ecosystem, of course, when, we, when I don't um, uh, own you, I not only don't own you or control you, um, you know, if, you're, if you're a player on my digital platform, I may not even be explicitly aware that you're part of my uh, ecosystem, and of course, your business is not the same as my business. We're we're competing in a in a in a broad sense, but not in a direct sense. We're not you're not just a smaller version of me. You're different from me, and therefore, you have your own concerns and your own your your own your own concept of strategy. So, I I think that especially in the case of cities, you mentioned the Copenhagen um, uh, esports um, uh, ecosystem. I imagine that. Um, what different players in that ecosystem think the strategy is, is very different, especially because in that case, um, the idea of orchestrator uh, orchestration is very weak. The idea of a single will dominating the system. There is a, um, I, uh, if I remember correctly, there is a, um, there is a sort of a, a, a consortium or there is a, a coordinator which, which looks after the common interest of this uh, this collection of uh, esports-based companies, um, but um, you know they're not really a top-down uh, dictator. Um, so in that particular case, I imagine that uh, people wouldn't even recognise as um, as a, a, the idea of a of, of a common strategy. Now, with a digital orchestrator, often a um, in a business, um, often the Tremendous investment is required in a platform, and it takes uh, it takes a while for that to for that to pay off to cultivate both sides of a marketplace. So in that case, somebody has to take the risk and needs a certain degree of control um, in order to do that. But that's not an inherent and unchanging recipe. The other uh, another thing we should question is when we use the word ecosystem, whether there is one type of ecosystem. So just as I'm questioning whether there's one type of strategy. I think actually there are multiple types of ecosystem. Natural ecosystems do not have an orchestrator. Um, uh, cities may not have a, a very powerful orchestrator. Some ecosystems do have an orchestrator. Some ecosystems are closed. Not anybody can join. Um, others are completely open. Um, anyone can join. And the feedback mechanisms of the ecosystem create the selections so that the most contributing companies you know, rise, rise, uh, rise to the fore. So putting all of this together, I think... Another mod mental model we could we could adopt here is to say that 
you know, essentially we're relaxing some of the assumptions of the, of the straitjacket of, 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 of classical strategy, uh, which make it both more fitting for today's circumstances and more powerful, but also more treacherous. I mean, obviously, the less guidelines and rules we have, uh, the the harder the game of strategy becomes. I've been reading some of your writings in preparation for this evening, and I'm thinking about the future 50. And I wonder in the future, um, I don't know how far in the future, would the future 50, would the firm no longer be a useful unit of analysis? Would would ecosystem, I, ecosystems, and I, I realize that there are already pl two-sided platform organizations that are represented there, but would the sum of your relationships become more important than the sum of your assets? Well, I guess this goes back to, you know, ancient philosophy. Is the river that we step into the the same river that we stepped into yesterday? I mean, it's uh, the, uh, the the river may have the same name and follow roughly the same course, at least in the short term, but the, you know, the water is different and the person stepping into the water is not exactly the same person. So, you know, in, in a, uh, the company is a legal construct. Well, Will probably endure, um, um, at least in the in the in the medium term. Um, but it, it it may be uh, you know the content of that uh, of that category may uh, may 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 change more uh, over time. May need to change more over time. So it's already the case. We this Fortune Future Fifty that we you referred to. It's an attempt to say uh, what drives forward-looking growth. Most of the, most of the metrics of business are backward-looking either financial outcomes um, or productivity ratios. Um, so we used machine learning to figure out, you know, what predicts future growth. And uh, we came up with, with 16 variables. And those 16 variables are changing. And I expect the correlations are going to look different uh, this year again because of the uh, uniqueness of the, uh, of, of, of the COVID crisis. Um, so, um, you know, I think we need to... Um, constantly question and re reinvention and reimagination is one of the key constructs here, which is, uh, you know, you can think about strategy two, two, two ways. The simple classic way of thinking about strategy is you can think about the uh, different actions and plans within a broadly unchanging company and unchanging industry. Or you can think about constant reimagination renewal in the context of an ever-changing entity and an ever-changing web of relationships. I think we're moving more in general terms in the direction of the latter, although, of course, it varies from, uh, uh, from, uh, from, from industry to industry. And that is a challenge for large corporations because uh, large corporations uh, often run themselves on standardization, right? They talk about the organizational structure, the strategy, uh, you know, the process, uh, the plan. Um, and they train for particular types of uh, particular types of role, and they have role descriptions, and their uh, their ERP system may be predicated on stable processes. The processes themselves don't don't change very much. They can get optimized. Their parameters can change, but they don't actually fundamentally change. Uh, whereas if you look at um, Hire or um, Alibaba. Um, so we wrote a, a, a piece with uh, the Alibaba head of strategy, Ming Zheng, a couple of years ago called The Self-Tuning Company. And it was, it was modeled on the, um, the engineering construct of the self-tuning radio. Uh, so the radios in your, your iPhone is basically a radio. It, it, uh, it needs to tune into a frequency, but you don't have to tune a frequency dial. The, 
the radio itself tunes into its own frequency. And so if you could think about an organization that's constantly retuning itself into the shifting market reality, not just the external manifestation, the marketing department, but the, but the internal processes of the organization, you have a different construct of, uh, of, 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 of a company. And that's a, that's a very challenging one to operationalize. And I think that accounts for a lot of the uh, ex experimentation we see with uh, internal governance models, with uh, holacracy and market-based dynamics and the, um, and the, uh, and the higher uh, micro-business unit construct where the, you know, people are trying to create coherence between the inside and the outside of an organization by also revolutionizing you know, how, we, uh, how we organize that hasn't really changed very much since, uh, since the, the, the concept of uh, you know, Adam Smith's pin factory. And, and Martin, um, just to continue a little bit on this, uh, because I think it's, it, it's offering us a, a nice uh, place where we can uh, somehow go towards the end of this conversation. It's, it's really about uh, uh, what you just said. You know, to, so to look into organizations as ever-changing webs of relationships. And I thought uh, that was really a very good image, you know, because, uh, for example, often we... When we talk about the research that we are doing, we are, we said that uh, we say that we are looking into not just the future of the organization, but more the future of organizing. And uh, another thing that went uh, came back to my mind when you when you said this, uh, you know, when you identify this idea of organizations as a web of relationships, um, it, it was the words of uh, uh, of Jean Grumin that uh, when I was there with Bill in January uh, last year, he said. Uh, Uh, maybe companies are going to disappear, but organizations won't. So, you know, coming back to the question, I think uh, it's interesting to, to question now how organizations uh, and organizing is going to cross boundaries and not just, I mean, uh, geographical boundaries or, 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 or more traditionally, you know, visible boundaries, but I would say also the boundary of time. Uh, so, so, so in, in, as we move into this uh, post-industrial age, you know, that is much more complex and there's much less predictability, uh, maybe uh, what we need to reconsider is really this idea that the company strategy is all about enduring, it's all about surviving, you know, in, in its form, and, uh, uh, and this idea of conservation, you know, so... Uh, so, so can we maybe develop a theory of organizing that is much more about, uh, uh, much more contextual, much more ready to, uh, you know, organizations dying for being born again in another form, and maybe in this process also embrace different constituents that, than the shareholders, you know, because, of course, uh, uh, you know, most of, uh, uh, much of the theory of organizing that we have now is very much related to this idea of shareholders. So the question is, what are the new constituents, for example, that are going to participate uh, in the process of organizing that goes beyond uh, the, the concepts of the industrial age? Yeah, so I think um, in a dynamic and unpredictable environment, and I think that will be with us for some time, um, because... Uh, for a couple of reasons, you know, technology is not done yet. I mean, te technology driving business model evolution, driving dynamics of competition, it's not done yet. It's, it's artificial intelligence has not played out as a force and the Internet of Things has not played out as a force and 5G has not played out as a force. Um, 
That combined with the interconnected um, and therefore rapidly changing and unstable and unpredictable nature of our uh, global economy um, means that this radical unpredictability is going to be with us for some time. Under those circumstances, I do think that um, business becomes more like biology. Um, so, you know, biology is an infinite game. You don't, um, you know, you don't play one chess match or one round of, uh, uh, of, of, of natural selection and then you're done and you declare a winner. Um, winning is surviving to fight another day. And in a world of declining corporate longevity, we have to survive uh, uh, for another day. Um, and that means um, that, and that, that, that drives everything we just talked about, right? That drives perpetual change and reinvention and reimagination. And it also drives um, the importance of resilience. And, you know, how do we build resilient, um, how do we build resilient organizations? Um, so resilient organizations, um, uh, and I've studied this with a, with a biologist, Professor Levin at uh, Princeton University, Resilient uh, organizations, both natural organizations and artificial organizations. Um, um, so you know, rainforests uh, and uh, you know, and 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 uh, governments and ancient universities and companies. Resilient organizations have a couple of characteristics. So one of them is that they uh, they have redundancy. Um, so this may horrify any uh, CFO, but. Um, there is a trade-off between efficiency and resilience. We have buffering capacity or we don't have buffering capacity. 100% efficiency means 100% fragility. Um, we, they have diversity. Um, uh, diversity not just as a political slogan, but diversity in the sense of cognitive diversity and different ways of reacting to things and different ways of thinking. Uh, because d diversity means essentially that you have multiple options to react to the unexpected as opposed to having correlated responses and of course correlated responses are the things that make systems collapse. They have modularity, the, the perfectly efficient integrated design where, where one part of the design collapses, everything collapses, is not desirable in, an, in a changing world. They have adaptability, they're able to easily flex and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and learn. Um, and that learning occurs at different levels. It occurs at a physical level, but it occurs at a mental level too. They have prudence. They, uh, you know, uh, resilient systems consider what could happen uh, in uh, in a hundred years, uh, because what could happen in what could happen in a hundred years, or what has happened in the last hundred years, um, may be improbable uh, in terms of the next five minutes, but it may be a an inevitability on, on longer time scales. So, you know, prudence, uh, the precautionary principle. And then lastly, embeddedness, namely, um, you know, one of the, uh, uh, one of the best ways of, of, of dying in the long term, if you want to create something with inbuilt obsolescence, is to push against the, uh, the grain of the larger system within which you're embedded. Um, so if you are a, uh, you know, if you're pushing against the norms of society, um, or if you're depleting the natural ecosystem, you know, sooner or later, you're going to be, that larger system is going to either collapse and undermine your own well-being, or it's going to mobilize against you, it's going to create antibodies against you uh, as a disruptor of that larger system. So the idea of purpose and alignment and embeddedness within larger systems um, is, is really critical. So all of these are ways of thinking about um, 
if you like, the, uh, the, the biology of strategy. So I, I, I talk about um, uh, you know, biological thinking as being a key, a key skill that um, managers now need to, uh, to, to, to master as they think about all of the things uh, that we've talked about today in order um, that they can understand how to produce resilient uh, enterprises um, in order that they can survive and thrive uh, in a dynamic and, and unpredictable world. And Martin, do you think that this transition towards this resilient enterprise that is more redundant, uh, diverse and embedded uh, will happen by policy making, will happen by market competition, or maybe will happen by the emergence, as I said, of different constituents? So maybe the entrepreneurial activity of the future will be less about uh, uh, you know, the corporate, as we know it, but maybe, uh, you know, we will see the participation of uh, citizens or uh, other forms of, uh, uh, you know, um, incorporation and, and collaboration around uh, a venture that doesn't come from the natural world of, uh, you know, the usual world of corporates and shareholders. So what are the, the drivers of this transition? So one driver is uh, one driver is the larger systems of society. So you know, clearly, looking at our healthcare systems um, and our disaster preparedness systems, um, you know, they leave, they've left something to be desired in the in the in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. Now, some countries will probably just go back to normal, <clears throat> or they'll blame other countries. Um, others probably have a serious intention to uh, use this as an opportunity to improve systems uh, resilience. And uh, so government could become more important again. Um, uh, you know, it strikes me that government has been a, a bit of an apology for itself in recent years, um, as, as we've, uh, you know, worshipped the markets and, um, and spoken, spoken about bureaucracy and governments and regulation as if they are sort of bad things. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've downplayed government and government has downplayed itself. But I think um, we see the the importance of government, and so it will happen uh, top down. Um, I think that um, it will also happen um, uh, from through shareholders. I, I think that uh, uh, you know shareholders will. Uh, in fact, we we, we do an, uh, we've been doing a, an investor survey since the beginning of the the COVID crisis, and uh, you know we've noticed that um, uh, although companies are still required to report on their quarterly earnings. Um, investors uh, do not expect that um, the great predictability on that score. But what they do uh, really want right now is they want uh, a rationale as to why the company is going to survive, how its viability is going to be maintained. So investors are already concerned with their rational financial interest, which is uh, the resilience and survivability of the corporations that they're investors in. And it will happen partly through competition. Um, undoubtedly, some companies will... Um, uh, will say yes. Heard it all before. Let me just carry on with my with my planning protocols. And and others uh, like some of the ones I've mentioned will be saying, well, we need to uh, experiment with new forms of governance. And um, and the the market will judge will judge the result. Um, I think it is already judging the result in 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 many industries where where we're seeing the rise of these dynamic governance forms like ecosystems. Uh, as I said, you know, seven of the world's uh, 10 largest companies are now uh, two-sided digital marketplaces or, um, you know, multi-hundred company 
digital uh, ecosystems. And one of the main characteristics, uh, one, two of their main characteristics are they don't, they span industries and they're, they're, they're highly dynamic governance forms. If you say, what's the structure of Alibaba and its ecosystem? Um, impossible to say because it's, it's constantly changing. And in, in many ways, that's the point. Um, the only thing I would caution against is um, thinking about everything that we've talked today, about today as, as a single panacea. I think that the, the significance of these concepts will be different in different ways to different degrees uh, in, uh, in, in, different, uh, in, in different enterprises uh, and industries. So I'd expect the result to be more like a patchwork, certainly one that's very different from today than... Um, uh, than than be like a new monoculture where, you know, a two-sided transactional marketplace is the answer to everything at all times, and uh, and everybody's competing in the same way. In, in fact, um, you know, in game theory, of, of course, um, heterogeneous games and and unpredictability of competitive response are part of the competitiveness of the strategy of complex games. You know, even if there were. Uh, an optimal solution, uh, Keteris Paribus, you know, for, for an individual competitor, um, given that, that, that these strategies we've been talking about are open to, to all competitors, um, it may be rational for some competitors to adopt a so-called suboptimal strategy, uh, which becomes, you know, optimal in a game, uh, in, 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 a game theoretic, in a game theoretic sense. Bill, do you want to add something in the closure, in the closing? Very, very quick question, um, Martin. Much of what we talked about, I think, is quite optimistic. But um, somewhere recently, you've written about the the really exceptional firms, the firms best positioned for the future, tend to be on the east coast of China or the west coast of the U.S. And Europe really doesn't rep, isn't well represented. And it's not well represented because of what you call headwinds, things like an aging population or um, uh, an economic port macroeconomic portfolio that's less digital than others. Is that any? Do you see any hope for that being um, turned around, or is Europe, in your in your mind, condemned to always be in third place as we go forward? Well, of course. Um... History is uh, is not a, a passive trajectory. Um, history is determined by us. We have agency, so nothing is inevitable. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the default course, you know, without intervention and imagination and uh, and leadership, I, I, I think that there are a number of headwinds um, for Europe. Um, I think. Uh, Aging demographics, I think, um, you know, fractiousness within the European Union, uh, especially um, uh, if we see strong economic pressure, if we see a, a recession or a depression coming out of the COVID crisis. Um, and also, yes, so Europe is, it's a fact that on most metrics, Europe is well behind China and the US technologically. And technology, our Fortune Future 50 index tells, tells us that technology is the, the main driving force of of growth in business. Now, we may see a temporary setback to that. Um, some, some digital ecosystems that are based upon human interactions, things like um, you know, Airbnb and, uh, and Uber and so on, may see um, you know, temporary setbacks. But nevertheless, I expect technology to continue to be a major driver. So yes, huge headwinds for Europe to, be, um, uh, to have uh, economic primacy. 
uh, in the world. Um, but nevertheless, um, assets to build on and nothing is inevitable. So it has the assets of its education system. So while applications of AI may be behind in Europe, um, some very interesting and original research is being, being carried out at the uh, uh, you know, ancient universities of, of, of Europe. So the, there's the research base of Europe. Um, I think um, I think the maturity of European societies is a uh, is in some ways a drag, but also in other in other senses a, a, an advantage. So as the world embraces sustainability, um, and we may even begin to compete on sustainability, you can imagine um, the emergence. Uh, well, I don't know if we imagine. We already have ethical premium goods where I'm paying for. Um, organic and biodynamic and sustainable as a claim or a, a feature of my products. And I'm paying more uh, because my purchasing behavior is an expression of my values. Um, so, you know, I can imagine that Europe may, may take a, a lead on some dimensions of, um, of, of, of sustainability, uh, for example. Um, also, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the European um, uh, philosopher Machiavelli, I think, has um, uh, has a number of interesting lessons for us. Just because uh, we don't have the most powerful kingdom does not mean that we cannot be highly effective as a kingdom. Um, you know, when you have uh, powerful rivals, um, you know, Machiavelli would say that well, one of the games you can play is you can uh, you can you can have alliances. Um, uh, you can say, um, you know, dear superpower, you can invest in Europe, but only subject to these constraints. Uh, otherwise, you don't get access to our market. Or you can have, um, or you can have, uh, you can exacerbate uh, and encourage competition between those rivals and make sure that that benefits you. Um, so nothing is inevitable, and uh, but I think uh, certainly uh, headwinds that need to be taken account of in uh, in constructing industrial policy and, and the areas that I'd be looking to make sure we have um, imaginative thoughts around. I think one of them would be translation of research uh, into, uh, into applications. Another one would be the funding of startups. Another would be access policies to the European market. Another one would be uh, trade policy. Another one would be um, uh, ecological or you know, natural environment policy. Um, another one would be M&A policy. Um, you know, Europe and its uh, <clears throat> you know zealousness to make sure that um, uh, we, we don't create m monopolies in Europe, um, of course, creates uh, other challenges unintentionally uh, in terms of um, not being able to construct uh, global uh, global scale champions uh, in, in in technology. So many many things to be thought about, but uh, I'm basically an optimist um, and I believe in human ingenuity so I'm, I'm sure we can uh, address address these issues thank you very much Martin that was an amazing conversation is there anything else that uh, since we are uh, over an hour already is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners that uh, we didn't cover so something that maybe sometimes goes undercover or, or maybe goes under uh, recognized when we talk about platforms and ecosystems no, I think we covered history, philosophy, human nature, technology, strategy, organizations. So I think we probably uh, we, we 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 probably uh, gave gave people enough food for thought for uh, for the time being. But uh, thanks very much for this opportunity. It was a great conversation. 
Thank you very much, Martin. It was great to have you. And thanks, Bill, for the questions. To be a part of this. Really wonderful. And for the listeners, we'll catch up soon. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.